This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Greetings, Gothamites. Lane here. Welcome to episode 16 of Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose, where the only pictures are those formed in the imagination. Today, we're discussing chapters 11 and 12 of book number two, which is Batman the Ultimate Evil by Andrew Vax. Speaking of Andrew Vax, I hope you all enjoyed the interview in the previous episode. I was really thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with him, and he was incredibly gracious with his time, considering how very busy he is. Thank you also to those of you who submitted questions for me to ask him. With your help, I wasn't too much of a stammering idiot trying to conduct my first interview with some modicum of professionalism. A few of you reached out to comment on the interview. Paxton from the I Read Movies podcast, John and Maggie from the Married with Comics podcast, Chris from BTO and Bat Books. Thank you all so much. These guys have some excellent excellent podcast in their own right, so I certainly highly recommend listening to their stuff. A reminder that if you'd like to get in touch with me, there are a few ways to do that. I have a Facebook page that you can find by searching for the title of the show. You can contact me via email at darknightpros at gmail.com or over on Twitter at batmanbooks underscore dkp. Finally, you can find me around the Batman Universe's Discord pages. All right, Let's get started on chapter 11, which starts on page 91. Chapter 11, scene 1. That evening, Deborah Kane trudged through the refuse scattered throughout an alley in the misery-splattered neighborhood known as the Bowery. She good-naturedly bemoaned her high heels, feeling much more comfortable in sneakers and jeans, but her job required a professional appearance. Even if it doesn't provide professional paychecks, she thought to herself. Her car was parked at the end of the alley, right next to a huge green dumpster. It wasn't exactly an ideal spot, but the city council had not seemed fit to issue privileged parking stickers to child protective caseworkers, obviously believing such largesse was better bestowed on doctors who never made house calls, and major campaign contributors who did. She reaches into her purse for her keys, and when she hears another set of footsteps right behind her, she spins around keys protruding from her clenched fingers. What do you want? Deborah asks. Why, sweetheart, I don't want much. Just you, if you get my drift. Deborah squares up in a fighting stance. Come on, then. Take it easy, sweetheart. No use rushing things. How about if you just... At this point, the man notices Batman emerging from the nearby shadows. Batman says... Your partner is going to be late for your meeting. The man who had been stalking, Deborah Kane, whipped a length of bicycle chain from around his waist. 
With an explosion of breath to add strength to his thrust, he charged the Batman, swinging the chain with practiced skill. But the Batman flowed beneath the swinging chain as smoothly as water under a bridge. He came out of his crouch with an explosive sidekick, driving the would-be rapist into the alley wall with sufficient force to raise a small cloud of brick dust. The man crumpled to the ground, the chain falling from his fingers. Deborah stands transfixed. She's heard rumors of the Batman. She says, Thank you, but I could have... Batman interrupts. I don't think so. If you look behind your car, you'll see this one's partner. The idea was to have you concentrate on him while his partner took you out from behind. He has Deborah wait there while he goes to where her car is parked, and he returns with an unconscious man draped over his shoulder. He drops him next to the other. He applies restraints, then contacts Commissioner Gordon via a wrist communicator. Two attempted rapists, down and restrained, near the mouth of the alley between 48th and 49th. If they fail to confess, contact Ms. Deborah Kane, Gotham CPS. Ms. Kane was the intended victim. One of them made a direct attempt and can be ID'd by Ms. Kane. The other was lurking behind her official vehicle. The vehicle has been disabled. You will find an ice pick in the right rear tire. It should have the lurker's fingerprints all over the handle. The vehicle will remain in place so that your forensics people can gather the evidence. Without waiting for Gordon's reply, Batman closes the channel and tells Deborah that he would be honored to escort her out of there. My notes. I'm curious how widespread the rumors of Batman were, or if Deborah even believed them. Were they just kind of whispers that you'd catch if you're in the right place at the right time, or is he sort of a citywide urban legend? Deborah's pretty cool headed, so it's hard to get a read on if she was awed by his physical abilities or if she was awed simply because he exists. Either way, I appreciate that Vax remains loyal to the personality he's given her. She's not flaky one moment and pretending to be tougher than she really is the next moment. I feel like every glimpse we've gotten of her, even though she's in different situations and has to react accordingly, at her core, she's still Deborah Kane. Another thing I appreciate in this scene is how Batman crosses all the T's and dots all of the I's when it comes to making sure there's enough evidence for the GCPD. I believe that some of this is Hand of the Author, with his background in law. When Batman makes his call to Gordon, he lays out the details very clearly and efficiently. What happened, who it happened to, where it happened, how to ID both of the suspects, just bam, 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 done. Not only is that sort of clarity and efficiency needed in the legal world, it also suits Batman's character wonderfully. Chapter 11, Scene 2 As Deborah Kane and the Batman emerged from the mouth of the alley, the caseworker said, It's quite a distance from here to my apartment, too far to walk in these heels, and I can't see a cab stopping for... you. I can just... That won't be necessary, the Batman replied touching a transmitter on his utility belt. I'm sure if we just wait here, we'll have transportation in a minute. Deborah Kane opened her mouth to reply, but before a word could pass her lips, a vehicle slipped silently around the corner and came to a stop before them. Too long and massive to be a motor vehicle, the dark shape reminded Deborah of the famous ice train. She had ridden it last summer from Hamburg to Frankfurt while on the vacation. It had taken her nearly six years to save for on her meager salary. The Batman touched his utility belt again. The Batmobile's canopy slid back with a faint hydraulic hiss, 
revealing a cigar-shaped interior. Behind the driver's compartment was a pair of passenger seats, each one equipped with a five-point racing harness instead of a conventional seatbelt. Batman says, With your permission, before placing her in one of the passenger seats. He then says, Put your seatbelt on! You're breaking the law! He vaults into the driver's compartment and performs a systems check. All is good. For city driving, Batman uses small auxiliary turbines behind the rear wheels. The main turbine is set higher and centered in the Batmobile's rear deck. Deborah Kane thinks to herself, Don't be intimidated. So what if you don't ride in a Batmobile every day? Don't just sit there with your mouth open like a little girl on the Ferris wheel. She leans as far forward as the harness will allow and peers through the observation slits and asks Batman how he can see what's behind him. He explains that many cams assist with that. Deborah learns a little bit about the Batmobile, that the entire vehicle is designed to withstand anything from small arms up to bombs and missiles. She leans back in her seat and watches the streets to try to get a sense of the speed at which they are traveling. Deborah quickly realized that a valid estimate of speed was impossible. The sensation was more akin to flying than driving. The Batmobile's onboard computer independently balanced each wheel gyroscopically. The computer also controlled the height of the undercarriage, rising for the potholed city streets, lowering for maximum aerodynamics when in pursuit mode. The Batmobile also featured a complete ground effect system that could exert a vacuum force, increasing adhesion beyond that of any race car. Deborah tried to estimate speed by watching other cars on the road, but the Batmobile flicked past them so smoothly that only a sensation of passage could be felt. They eventually come to the area of the city known as Crime Alley. Somehow, Deborah thinks, Batman knows that her studio apartment is just on the other side of Crime Alley. But the Batmobile slips into a side street and comes to a stop. Deborah asks, what's wrong? And Batman replies that he isn't sure. He activates the probes, and a video monitor shows half a dozen men outside a bar, loitering on the sidewalk and taking up enough space that passers-by must pass them by stepping into the street. A woman comes into view on the monitor. She is shapely and has long red hair. She's wearing a micro-mini and a shirt that is very tight. As she approaches the men, their postures change. A man in a wheelchair with a blanket in his lap also approaches, but the thugs keep their attention on the woman. Batman throws the Batmobile into gear, taking corner after corner as smoothly as a jungle cat until it finally comes upon the streets where the scene they watch on the monitor is taking place. Batman stops at Deborah to stay here, and he punches a button marked SQ-3. The canopy retracts, and twin air cannons in the driver's seat launch Batman into the air. Deborah watches the scene via the monitor. Batman drops down among the people. Suddenly, the man in the wheelchair pulls a sawed-off shotgun from under the blanket on his lap. He's quick, but the Batman is quicker. He kicks the weapon out of the man's hands. Batman whirls, ducking just in time to avoid being shot. Not by the gang of men, but by the red-headed woman. She kicks off her spiked heels and stands in a combat shooting crouch, a submachine gun in her hands. Batman shouts, Drop it, Rose. It's all over now. You got that right, she shouts back, then fires at one of the thugs cringing against the window of the bar. He goes down, a bullet hole in his forehead. A batarang trailing a cord wraps around Rose's ankles, bringing her down. Batman follows immediately to yank the submachine gun out of her hands. He quickly applies restraints. 
Sirens are approaching, and we learn that the SQ-3 button automatically sends the location of the Batmobile to the GCPD. Just as Batman stands, a shotgun blast takes down another of the thugs. The man in the wheelchair has tipped himself out of the chair and crawled over to the shotgun, then continued to crawl until he was in an acceptable position to fire. Batman slowly walks over to the man with the shotgun and says quietly, Gary, it's done now. I know you've got another gun hidden somewhere. Give it up. You'll be no good to Rosie dead. Batman reaches a hand to Gary, who takes it. He carries him one-armed over to the wheelchair. He stands the wheelchair back up, then places Gary into it. Gary hands over a 357 Magnum. Some police have gathered, and Batman joins them, pulling aside a sergeant. He spends a few minutes explaining what happened to him. Then he returns to the Batmobile and leaves the scene. My notes? Okay, what the hell just happened? Okay, let me back up and take it chronologically. Uh, first of all, I'm so glad for another opportunity to use the seatbelt sound clip. It's also great to get some more detail about the Batmobile. While I'm sure she was being hyperbolic, Deborah says that the Batmobile is bigger than a Greyhound bus. That's kind of interesting. Remember, this story was written only a couple of years after the 89 Batman, and in that movie, the Batmobile is still basically car-sized. But when you look at the Batmobile in the 2015 game Arkham Knight, it's freaking huge. You don't really notice its size until someone stands next to it. My knowledge of the comics between 1989 and 2015 is spotty, and I know even less of the Batmobile at this time, so I'm curious if Fax was independently onto something by indicating that the Batmobile is much larger than your typical car, or maybe it was included in whatever information the editors at DC gave to him. Which again would be kind of strange because up to this point, I think most visual depictions of the Batmobile has it just being a cool car. Either way, pretty cool. A good thing Batman is a billionaire though. The Batmobile's MPG has got to be total sh**. I wonder what size gas tank that thing holds. And does no one pay attention to the amount of gasoline that Bruce Wayne purchases? Hmm. I'd also like to know what tipped Batman off that something was going down, especially since it seems like they were at least a block away. Remember, they drove around a few corners before they got to the scene. And how did he get a visual on the happenings? Do the probes include hacking into Gotham CCTV surveillance? That could very well be. But that raises the question, would residents of Crime Alley actually tolerate surveillance cameras? I bet the cameras would last all of 30 minutes before someone tore them down to sell the parts. Hell, cameras aren't even safe from Batman in the games Arkham Asylum or Arkham City. Poor cameras. They don't stand a chance. Chapter 11, Scene 3. We've got lots of dialogue. Gather round, folks. Put up your feet. And listen to... Rest in peace, Theater is proud to present That Time Batman Goes to Deborah's Apartment. Special guest stars Chris as Batman and Ken as the narrator. What in the world was that all about? What did you see? I saw a crowd of creeps hanging out, waiting for someone to push around. What else? I saw a woman dressed like some movie version of a prostitute and a man in a wheelchair. Then it all went crazy. How did you- I had one major advantage over you. I've known them for a long time. Those creeps hanging around the- No, 
Rosie the Riveter and One Punch Gary. They're partners. Partners in what? Murder. They're professional killers. Both of them. Then what was... I don't know yet. I can tell you this much for sure. At least two of the men in that crew had done something to someone. Something bad. My best guess is rape. And somebody, the victim, her family, friends, hired Rosie and Gary to get revenge. They've worked this bit before. Everybody's eyes are on Rosie, so they never see Gary coming. I can see why they call her Rosie the Riveter. Every man's eyes were glued to her. But the other one, how come... They don't call her the Riveter because of the way she looks. It's because of the way she shoots. As neat and precise as a row of rivets. Her reputation is that she never misses. And they call Gary One Punch because his upper body is incredibly strong. He can immobilize a man with a single blow. And I guarantee that when they get to court, he'll try to take all the weight off Rosie and put it on himself. He may be in a wheelchair, but you can always count on him to stand up. The Batmobile was back in the shadows of the city, running under the abandoned Gotham viaduct with its lights off, using infrared sensors to ward off danger. I've never been down here after dark before. Smart move. In this part of town, things are as bad as they seem. Both were silent for a few minutes, watching the dots of light where members of the homeless army had built small fires to ward off the evil spirits they were busy ingesting. Occasionally, a hungry dog would flip past their vision, hunting hungrier rats. Can I ask you something else? Yes? They knew they were going to be caught, didn't they? I mean, not at first, but when you showed up. They couldn't get away then, right? Right. So why did they keep on? If they had just stopped, they would still have been arrested, but it wouldn't be for murder. And with so many witnesses... They're professionals. True professionals. Chapter 11, Scene 4. The Batmobile eased to a stop right in front of Deborah Kane's apartment building. The canopy slid back as the Batman effortlessly vaulted out of his seat to the ground. He again extended a hand to Deborah and gently lifted her out of the vehicle. She stood on the sidewalk facing the masked man, a torrential stream of conflicting emotions raging through her. Did you just happen to be there tonight when that man tried to... No, I wanted to talk to you about the work you do, about some work I need to do. Why me? I know you are a person of deep conviction and sincerity when it comes to your work. My sources are not important. I know them to be as impeccable as if I had made the observations with my own eyes. Would you like to come up? I could... Yes, I would like to come up. There's just one small thing that would make it a bit easier. And what's that? Leave a window open. Chapter 11, Scene 5. Deborah walked up the eight flights to her studio apartment bypassing the cantankerous old elevator that seemed to delight in trapping unwary tenants between floors. Besides, she told herself ruefully, until she finally managed to put some money together, this was as close to a stairmaster as she was going to get. Inside, she carefully latched the door behind her before opening the single back window. She glanced outside at the night, seeing the familiar fire escapes lined with flower pots the residents used to beautify their surroundings. Occasionally, they used them to convey their displeasure at noisy activity in the alley below. So many pots had been launched in that fashion over the years that the alley itself was covered with a motley assortment of flowers and vines. Should I change my clothes? Do I have time for a shower? She paced impatiently around the small apartment, 
trying to decide until the issue was settled by a black shape flowing through her back window. I hope my entrance didn't disturb you. The dividing line between his dark presence and the room's dim light was impossible to determine. Not at all. Can I get you something? I would appreciate a glass of water. Deborah Kane opened the refrigerator and twisted the spigot on a plastic bottle of spring water, filling a blue glass nearly to the brim. She brought the glass over to the dark figure, still standing in front of her back window. Thank you. As her fingers touched, Deborah felt a crackle joint of electricity shoot up her arm. She quickly glanced into the opaque masked eyes looking for... She didn't know what. The Batman's body seemed to shift with the fluidity of an inkblot, rearranging itself somewhere behind Deborah's sofa. Was that just the hint of a smile that flashed across his lips for a second? You said you wanted to talk to me about something. Is it true there is no biogenic code for criminality? That is absolutely true. The idea of the born criminal or the bad seed has been scientifically disproven for decades. That kind of nonsense is still spouted by people who are opposed to social programs, but- Why? Why? Because if children can be born bad, why spend money on education, or healthcare, or public housing, or- Child protective services? That's right. If criminals are made, not born, isn't it true that abused children grow up to be criminals? That's not true. Certainly, child abuse contributes to adult criminality, but it's not that simple. There are many other outcomes as well, from eating disorders, to drug abuse, to suicide. But- Let me finish. There are so many adult negatives associated with child abuse that it would take a textbook to list them all. Child abuse can push two similarly maltreated children in entirely opposite directions. One incest victim becomes promiscuous in adulthood, another never engages in sex again. But most victims don't become criminals. But if abuse was serious enough, couldn't- What is serious to one person isn't necessarily so to another. You never hear anything about emotional abuse, but in some ways, it is the most damaging of all. The only valid generalization about child abuse is that no generalization is valid. I understand. What confuses me is this. Every time I've questioned a serial killer, child abuse was in their background. So doesn't that mean- No. There is always a choice. If you excuse a serial killer because he was tortured as a child, you disrespect the thousands and thousands of other children who are treated even worse and yet never, never imitated their oppressor. Don't you dare do that in my house. I apologize. I wasn't drawing conclusions, just looking for answers. I'm sorry if I gave you the wrong impression. I fight crime. That's what I do. At least that's what I thought I was doing. Now I think what I'm doing is fighting criminals. And I think you, and people like you, are fighting crime. We are. It's true. We're on the front lines. We see the monsters way before you do. And as best we can, we try to intervene before it's too late. I know how truly important your work is. Thank you. Many abused children refuse to imitate the oppressor when they become adults. The Batman said, still holding her hand, bowing his head to whisper. And some go even further, don't they? Deborah nodded, not able to speak. You have my deepest respect. One warrior's respect for another. Deborah Kane closed her eyes. When she opened them, the Batman was gone. While I'm uh, rehydrating, do you want to tell the listeners where they can find you? 
I can be found on Twitter at B2MBatBooks, and the podcast The Professor Frenzy Show, BatBooks for Beginners, and the segment Chris's Cornucopia of Curiosities on the Batgirl to Oracle podcast. Thank you for having me on. I love Dark Knight and Probes. <laughs> Thank you very much. And unfortunately, we couldn't get Ken on here. He had uh, some other thing he had to do called work. <laughs> I mean, geez. Uh, but, you know, big thanks to him for providing our omniscient narrative voice. Yeah, so um, pretty powerful stuff in those couple of scenes, which is why, like I mentioned earlier, I didn't have the heart to, you know, use just one bit of dialogue and then leave the rest out. And similarly, the narrative that was used was so, it was just so compelling that I didn't have the heart to leave that out and use the dialogue only, which is why I brought Ken in to uh, record the narrative. Yeah, I, I am really looking forward to putting all this together. Uh, this is my first three-piece Rest in Peace theater, so... Great. I can't I can't wait to hear his voice. I'm looking forward to this. So what do you think of the scene? Pretty powerful, and I, I, I'm very happy it's one you selected. And there's a couple of ways to look at it, because not only uh, is doing something with respect to vocals, I, I think you've got some great lines, and I've got some great lines with with respect to on how to say it, and, and play off of each other from looking at it from that end. But with respect to the narrative, I'm very pleased that you chose what you did because um, I think it can really convey a, a sense of uh, the knowledge that Deborah has to the audience. And I don't think she's necessarily talking to Batman, but he's getting a handle on the perspective, which I think is really, really good Good writing's craftsmanship. So I think that's really, really key with, with, with how you did that. So... My applause to you. Well, and applause to the author, Andrew Vax. Uh, he yeah, puts this yeah. inter- information out there in a way that's uh, compelling to us as Batman fans. So I like the scene with Rosie the Riveter and One Punch Gary. Maybe I am, can blame Hollywood or whatever, whatever, but I think of professional assassins as being more stealthy and not as easily caught. So it seems that if um, they had put themselves in a position to be easily seen by a large number of witnesses, but what do I know? I'm not a professional assassin, so... Well, that's a fair point. You know, and I was thinking that too, because um, there's an independent book on the market now called Assassin Nation, where uh, the, the assassins have like a top 20 power ranking, like a video game thing, you know, with all, the, with all the ratings and stuff like that. So this one guy who knows he's going to be assassinated hires the top 20 as bodyguards. My imagination just threw Deadshot in there to see what would happen then. Yes. What, what's your familiar in the background with the character? Is it uh, from the game, uh, the Suicide Squad movie? Is there anything more than that? Uh, not much more than that. Isn't he the one who uh, helps Oliver Queen on the arrow? Or th- is he on the island with him at some point? It's been a few years since I've seen it, so. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I know he doesn't. He, he His role is kind of limited, though, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and then I'm I'm thinking of the Will Smith portrayal in Suicide Squad, where I have to do a little bit of an eye roll. Yeah, I have three very different incarnations that I've been exposed to, and then I haven't come across them in comics yet, but I know that I will. Uh, but it seems that perhaps the when he's in the Arkham game, he seemed like I could see that being more of a Batman villain than what I saw in Will Smith's character. Yeah, uh, there, there's that. I, I, he proved to be very, very formidable in the uh, Justice League cartoon as well. 
And when he popped up there, he really gave uh, the whole Justice League fits in one scene where he was uh, trying to take somebody out and, and trying to elude them. So uh, some of the depictions have been really, really good. And uh, yeah, some kind of character plucked out of obscurity that uh, they brought back in a Batman comic uh, in the late 70s. And then that sort of just kind of uh, cemented him. They gave him a new costume and then... Uh, really really upper echelon uh him once with uh suicide squad mm-hmm. yeah you weren't around with the previous chapters where bruce wayne has been uh, kind of hanging around with deborah kane most of the time in this book the my suspension of disbelief is is fine like it, everything's great so deborah strikes me as someone whose social circles are exceedingly small and i can't blame a girl So now she has Batman, who knows her by name and where she lives, and needing to ask her questions about her job. So would it really be that difficult for Deborah to go, hey, wait a minute, there's another new man in my life who has been asking about my job, and he has a similar jawline to yours, actually. I think so far in this book, that stretched my uh, suspension of disbelief the worst. And it, again, it's it's something I can overlook. I'm just like, oh, come on. If I had two people showing up asking me about doing Mark records and Boolean searches in the library, and one of them is wearing a mask, I'm like, hey, what are the chances of that? <laughs> so that was just a little bit of a, like a little bit of an eye roll moment, but... <laughs> Yeah, I definitely agree. I guess I'm one of those types. I want a good, healthy dose of realism in my fantasy and science fiction. By all means, then stay away from the '60s comic books. Oh, they'll, they'll, they're terrible. Then you'll, you'll just you'll just pull your hair out. I love some of the the late '30s, '40s, '50s stuff just for what they are. But I enjoy that with a different part of my brain than I enjoy the more modern and Bronze Age type stuff where it's a little darker, a little bit more gritty and real, in my opinion. Uh, so those I can enjoy with a larger part of my brain. I also like uh, takes, you know, it's it's not so much the, the horrific cruelty that they pull on Lois, you know, case in point was where Batman, uh, let's see, Superman had to go off on a mission, so Clark asks Batman to uh, pose you know, for him while he's gone away. Lois spies on him and sees Bruce changing into Superman. And Clark knows this, so he thinks, oh no. Well, okay, we'll disprove it, but we're also going to have some fun with it. So all the while, Lois is kind of like uh, getting romantic with Bruce. She's proposing marriage and all this, and it wouldn't be great, you know, and everything. So... Bruce kind of, per Clark's request, agrees to marry, you know, and then all of a sudden, here's the marriage, and then Super flies, Superman flies in to be the best man, and Lois is crushed. Oh no, I thought, I thought you were, and it's like, why, Lois, what's wrong, you know, and, and, and Bruce is saying, gee, Lois, you were toying with my feelings, and you know, all along he knew, I mean, the, the, the stories were just so mean back then, but to hear comic writers take on it, just to, to see the sarcasm, like a Fred Henbuck, who, who wrote, who just loved uh, writing about the the, the the cruelty that Lois was perpetrated on by uh, Superman and or Bruce or both of them at the same time was just really, really mean and horrific. But just to, to read a well-read article about how, how cruel they were is almost as self-satisfying as the story itself, mm-hmm. you know. I do love Amy Adams as Lois Lane, mostly because of her character being intelligent and knowing full well that Superman is Clark Kent or vice versa. And when he shows up at the Daily Planet to start working there, she just kind of gives him a little smile like, hey, you, let's do this. We're pretending to meet for the first time for the sake of our other people in the office. But I'm in this fully aware that we know that 
I know your secret, and we're both fine with that. Yeah, yeah, that that was good. I think the Christopher Reeve movies missed something of opportunity because Lois basically ascertained it in the second movie, but they did away with it. But uh, you know, I, I know you're the, it's the second movie of the franchise, and you you kind of have to. I don't know if they had they were dictated or mandated to stay more with canon with the comic books, but there it was. At least at least they for one moment in the film they they made Lois not look like an idiot and she was intelligent. So yeah, and, and she was actually pretty intelligent there as well. And she was very she she almost took the Lois Lane from the pages and portrayed her in a realistic way without losing too much of the character. Yeah, yeah. There and there are some parts it's like wow that was. She's kind of being a bit of a jerk to Clark Kent, but that's what she does, you know? Yes. And I think I, I hadn't watched the Superman movies in years, and I rewatched the first one a couple months ago, and where he flew out to California. I'm like, maybe this is where I had that deep-seated connection of Metropolis with the West Coast. I think of sunny and bright, but about the farthest east I usually go with that is maybe Chicago or you know, something like that. But I just always have this connection with it being a West Coast type of city. But it might have just been because I saw that as a child and saw him flying around California. And I thought, oh, Metropolis must be over there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird, too, with the, with the comics geography as well. I, I know that, you know, it kind of really had a head scratch when when you when I saw the one uh, more recent movie and they the cities were across the bay. And I'm thinking, oh, lies, really lies. They're all yeah, lies. No, 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 please. No, it's, yeah, it's not no. that at all. So. I refuse to accept that. It, and it is weird, too, because you, you get into some sticky problems with the, the comic geography a little bit, too. I remember there was uh, there was a ba- syndicated Batman comic strip and um, Batman had to visit Green Arrow and basically he pops in the Batmobile and just does a road trip and it's like I'll be in Star City in no time and you know Star City was like on the east or excuse me, the West Coast, pretty much established, you know, and and Gotham you'd think is like well on the other coastline, but but Batman just gets in the car and he, he seemingly gets there within an hour, so it's just, you know, I I know for the comic strip's sake, you know, uh, continuity you sort of have to throw that by the wayside, but it, it is it is interesting to see where where things land. Sure, I think of Star City, I'm not sure where I put Star City. I put Central City kind of a st louis kansas city yes yep that would be central city star city i think they wanted to uh, god uh i'm getting coast city where green air green lantern hangs out one of them is supposed to be based on san francisco okay i'm thinking star city may be frisco because there was a scene uh in a issue of the joker comic that they drew to be the golden gate bridge where where joker kidnaps dinah and Green Arrow goes after them, and there, there's this one, the climax is on, and what is obviously the Golden Gate, so. I think it was uh, the first, well, not the first, the second crossover between Flash and Arrow. Barry ran to Star City to meet with him, and so I thought, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's the Flash, he still has... He can cover a large distance, but I might not be as up to date on like the speed force and all that stuff. But if he had to run from, you know, quote unquote, St. Louis all the way to the West Coast, is he physically able to do that? Certainly in the comics. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I I think he, from what the, I I watch Flash, but I sort of watch it as its own thing. I, I don't think, I don't think this the particular Flash on uh, the the Barry Flash on the CW is quite as Flash as the one in the comics, or certainly as one in the Silver Age, you know, comic books where where he was just just insane speed. I used to be jealous of him being able to like go through a whole library of books 
to to get information but then I'm thinking yeah but from his point of view he's still reading through all of those books that's gotta suck <laughs> I'm surprised he still comes out of that with a smile on his face and like here's the information instead of like you bastards I felt like I just spent two months going through these books trying to find this information and you barely blinked while I was gone but anyway I know and I, I miss little touches like that I remember there was a Teen Titans story back in the uh, late 70s where Robin was on a case and he's still a student at Hudson University and he he goes all night to, to, to beat the villain and then it's like 4 a.m. and he's got a paper to turn in so he calls Wally hey pal can you can you come by and do me a favor you know <laughs> so he basically comes at him has him come over to type the report so it was hysterical <laughs> I just I just miss I miss little touches like that you know yeah well going back to the scene here um I was kind of impressed with Debra for kind of shutting Batman down a couple of times. Plausible, do you think? I, I think very plausible the way it's set up because we know Bruce has high regard for her and what she's doing and Batman then has high regard for her, especially as he kind of figures out that she's had an abused past and that's why she is so passionate about what she is doing. And so he very highly respects that. And he's going to her as... Uh, basically kind of a student you know he's learning about this world of child abuse that she knows too much about so when she kind of shuts him down i think he looks at her as you know she is in a position of authority on this topic at least so you know earlier when he uh, saves her in the alley and she's like you know yeah thanks but i could have he's like no while this person was coming at you, another person was crouched behind your car to take you out there. So I know know what I'm doing here. Here, you know what you're doing, and I'm going to acquiesce. I'm going to concede what you're saying and uh, accept it. Yep. Yeah. When you went over the book, and you've read it more recently than I have in its entirety, uh, was there anything that you question with respect to oh batman wouldn't do that or something that just seemed didn't quite hit all the notes per se or did it anything you said oh well i'm gonna let this slide or well may i'll buy that you know uh, so far nothing's popped out at me i haven't read the book in its entirety i'm actually oh, okay. reading it at the page like i'm at chapter 11 and 12 so i'm i'm at the pace that i'm recording so far Earlier on, when Batman was kind of going around and being rougher with criminals than he normally would be, let's see, let me try to think back on the example. Okay, one guy uh, starts mugging a couple of nurses, and Batman not only breaks his arm, he gives him a compound fracture and stalks off. And then he runs another guy off the road into the river, and the emergency services personnel are saying, yeah, Batman called it in. Normally, he would stick around to make sure the person was okay, but I don't see him this time. But that can be believable for me because this is after he's learning about the ugly world of child abuse that's going on under his nose in Gotham City. So he's got that on his mind, and we know that he likes to brood and seethe about things. So for me, that was plausible that he is acting a a bit rougher than he might normally in some situations because he's got this on his mind and he's angry so he's taking it out on people because child abuse is not something he can punch but he can punch this poor schmuck right here who made a bad choice but yeah thank you for for being my batman again (laughs) thanks for asking i'm glad to pinch it thank you for for discussing the scene with me and 
for the scenes. It's technically three scenes that we covered, I believe. And thank you, Ken, when you're listening to this later, as I hope you are. Uh, thank you for lending your voice as well. Fun fact for chapter 11. Lexan is a polycarbonate resin thermoplastic. Lexan is a brand name and not the name of the material itself, but it has become synonymous in the same way that Band-Aid has for bandages. Alright, that does it for chapter 11. We'll take a promo break here, and when we come back, we'll dig into chapter 12. Stay tuned. Hello everyone, I'm Maggie Schaefer-Haynes, the better half of Married with Comics and the Rod Pod. A year ago, my husband and I started our podcast as a way to share our love for comics, the myriad surrounding media, and each other. We've paraphrased panels, explained exposition, and commented on all of our favorite comics. But I'm a little bored with that, so I'm gonna go hang with these gals over here for a minute. Hey everybody, this is Barbara from A Gal Walks Into a Comic Shop. In our bi-weekly podcast, my co-host Bob and I cover comics new and old, present comic industry news, and occasionally strain our vocal cords to bring you classic comic reenactments. My favorite comics center on quirky characters and dark, introspective stories, topped with the dollop of the absurd. No bones about it. I love books that feature dogs, too. So... For this roundtable discussion, I'll introduce you to Lucky the Pizza Dog and cover Matt Fraction's groundbreaking Hawkeye Number no. 11, Pizza is My Business, published in 2012 by Marvel Comics. Hi there, folks. This is Elaine of Batman Books The Dark Knight in Prose and of Gothamites Anonymous. The issue I'm bringing to the roundtable discussion will be the 2017 special Batman and Elmer Fudd, because how could I not? Sawate omnes. Mihi nomen es Stella, and I am the host of Batgirl the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. When I heard about this particular roundtable, I thought, women and comics, what a delightfully novel idea. But then I had the problem of choosing which issue to bring to that roundtable. Is it going to be a shipperific issue? I, I just died on your arms tonight. Is it going to be one that showcases that Batman is in fact a jerk? If you leave your towels on the bathroom floor, we start getting that mildew smell. Have a little common courtesy for the rest of us. The bad signal. But when it came down to it, I knew that I had to go with the deeply meaningful Batgirl Volume 3, Number 3, by Brian Q. And I'll be shamelessly using this opportunity to finally get other women's opinions on Alan Moore's Swamp Thing issue number 40, The Curse, a man's take on women's issues. Join us for Square Women Round Table, a vanity project of Married With Comics coming to all your podcatchers in September 2019. Welcome back, folks. Let's start chapter 12, which begins on page 109. Chapter 12, scene 1. The Batmobile slowly snaked through Crime Alley, a hunting hawk to the underworld's mice. Word of Batman's latest appearance had already made its way down the Whisper Stream. When the Batmobile was loose, the stalkers shivered and the prowlers prayed. Even the more benign street players shuddered involuntarily. The penny-ante pickpockets and popcorn pimps cowered at the bad omen. Once the shadow-camouflaged machine left Crime Alley, its speed increased. 
On the expressway, the Batmobile slipped through the high-speed traffic like a fleeting memory, heading for Cambridge Mews, an exclusive suburb ten miles from the city. The crime fighter glanced at the video screen. The readout said, Alexander Horton, 7 Plebiscite Lane. He tapped a single key, and the screen changed to a street map. The target address was marked with a blinking red arrow. Batman nodded grimly, then tapped the same key again. The pixels on the video screen broke and reassembled, finally showing a photographic image of the house, a substantial home in the Mediterranean style. Architecturally undistinguished, the house, like many of its neighbors, was completely surrounded by a wrought iron fence. The fence around the target house was different, however. Unlike the decorative style favored by others, this fence was all business, and, the Batman noted, approximately three times the height of typical fences, about 15 feet. As the video image expanded, he could make out a thin coil of yellow and black wire entwined around the top of the fence. Even if a burglar were tempted to scale such a height, one touch anywhere around the top would cause immediate death by electrocution. As the Batmobile nears the destination, Batman switches the vehicle from turbine to full electric, allowing him to move in silence. He does a full circuit of the area. There is a steep drop-off behind the house and a guard standing just inside the front gate. Finally, he hides the Batmobile in a small copse of trees and looks up at the fence that runs behind the house. He waits five minutes, studying the surroundings. Satisfied, he removes a tire-sized disc from storage in the Batmobile. Four black aluminum legs pop out, and Batman adjusts it on the ground so that the flat, circular top is at an angle. He heads up the slope, turns back around, and pauses, breathing deeply, then runs toward the disc. He jumps, and the angle of the mini trampoline sends him back up the slope, up and over the fence. He lands on all fours inside the grounds. My notes? Oh, having the Batmobile being able to run on full electric is genius. It's wonderful. We see so much in movies that they're trying to make it bigger and faster and have bigger cannons and just generally being cool because it's the Batmobile. But here Vax introduces an element that should be obvious, but I've never seen, I've never thought of. I don't know if it's ever come up in comics, but but yeah, having him being able to drive in electric mode would allow him to creep along very silently. That is so cool. I love it. As for the disc, I was like, cool, what's this going to be? I wasn't expecting a trampoline, and I gotta admit, it puts a funny mental image in my head. The legs are aluminum, and that seems like it would be a bit uh, flimsy to do what it's designed to do. I mean, Batman's a big guy, and he's very muscular, so that makes him even heavier. And with him running down a hill and jumping onto it, I mean, that's a lot of force being put upon the trampoline. So, yeah, I don't know how strong aluminum can be. But either way, it's an interesting way to get up and over the fence. Sometimes a Batman's got to do what a Batman's got to do. Chapter 12, Scene 2, is a short one. Thanks to decades of training, the Knight Rider's eyes adjusted as instantly as a cat's. With the sole exception of a soft, rosy glow from a corner room on the third story, the house was as dark as the outside grounds. But after a quick glance, the Batman moved away from the glow, heading for the front of the house. The gate guard was monstrous, a man of sumo-wrestler proportions with no discernible neck. 
Disabling a man of that size without killing him would require surgical precision and a good deal of luck. The Batman mentally sorted through his options. Then a gloved hand flashed to his utility belt, emerging with three identical clear glass balls. The Batman shifted the three balls between his fingers, seeking that perfect symmetry that would put him in harmony with the objects. He looked down from his perch above the sumo guard and flung his hand forward, sailing all three balls in a perfect triangle. The leading ball struck the sumo on top of his head. The other two hit the ground, one on each side of the huge man. The sumo swooned. Then he fell to the ground with a noise like a safe hitting a putting green. The Batman moved in, checking for vital signs with a thumb against the carotid artery. The sumo wore a red knit shirt with the name Leo, sewn in neat script over the heart. He would be out for at least an hour. When he woke up, he would be nursing a spinal tap headache for a couple of days. After that, he'd be as bad as new. The Batman turned and headed for the house, a shadow among shadows. My notes? I don't know how quickly a cat's eyes adjust to light changing. Uh, If it's the middle of the night and I flip on my lights, my cats are blinking just as much as I am. I love that Vax is kind of getting across how much work it takes to do some of the things that Batman does. We so often see him just being Batman and just going through these motions effortlessly and getting these results that are almost superhuman. But I don't know what it is about this this scene, but for the first time ever, which is saying a lot considering how long I've been a fan of Batman, I feel the effort that it requires for Batman to do what he does. And I think that is fascinating. So yeah, disabling a man of that size without killing him, I imagine that's a pretty narrow gray area. He has to put him down, but not so far that he kills him. So he's going through his options to find, you know, what's going to work for him. The three balls were interesting. Kind of a mystic martial art type of thing, I guess. Otherwise, I don't see the point for the extra two balls. But yeah, pretty cool. Very Batman-y. Batman, tisk tisk, do not check a pulse with your thumb. The thumb can have large enough blood vessels that you sometimes register your own pulse. So just a tip for all you out there, if you're checking a pulse, use your first two fingers. And the line after that, he'd be as bad as new. That caught me off guard and I, I kind of giggled a little bit. Chapter 12, Scene 3 Even seated, one could see that the tall man still had remnants of a physique which once intimidated street criminals by its mere presence. The man stood almost six and a half feet, weighing nearly 300 pounds, and his tiny head exaggerated his body to almost comic book proportions. His small, close-set eyes were as flat and deathless as a lizard's, but his hands were busy. A busty blonde stood before him, dressed only in a bright red silk kimono. The man had one end of each kimono's belt in a huge hand. He was pulling on it with the gleeful expression of a child unwrapping a Christmas gift. Do you like your present? He asked the blonde. Oh, you know I do, Alex, she squealed. It's beautiful, she said, her lacquered nails toying with the diamond choker around her slender neck. Well, how about letting me see it then, he mocks snarled, still pulling at the kimono belt. Just give me a minute, I'll... The blonde's voice died in her throat as a pool of shadow in one corner of the living room materialized into the shape of a giant bat. The huge man came to his feet with a speed that belied his size. What the hell happened to- Leo, the Batman replied. You don't have to worry about him. He's gone to sleep on the job. Yeah? Well, let's see if you- 
The big man drew a pistol from his kidney holster, but dropped it unfired, as the Batman stabbed a two-finger nerve block to the inside of his elbow. Unarmed but still dangerous, the big man launched his trademark left hook, the punch that had immobilized a whole generation of thugs, but the Batman slipped inside the punch and drove his gloved fist to the man's heart, followed by a quick series of three-fingered strikes that climbed from the waist to the throat. The big man staggered back, desperately searching for a weapon but the Batman's paralyzing heel strike to the sternum ended the unequal contest. Batman applies restraints to the man's ankles and wrists. Then he picks him up and puts him in an armchair. The blonde woman watches, mouth and kimono agape. Batman says, Please sit down. The blonde sits stiffly on the stool, hastily pulling her kimono closed. What did you do to- Nothing of consequence. He'll be conscious in another minute or two. I'm going to talk to this man. He is going to answer my questions. Then I am going to leave. I am sorry about this, but you must remain where you are until I'm finished. I give you my word that you will not be injured. Do you understand? Yes. Look, you're not going to torture him or anything, are you? No. Approaching the seated man, the Batman touches a nerve cluster at the junction between the man's jaw and neck. Instantly, the man's tiny eyes pop open, and he surges in vain against the restraints. What do you want? I want some answers, and I want them tonight. What if I... I'm not here to bargain. I am going to ask you some questions. You are going to answer those questions. And then you're out of here? Yes. Ask away, pal. Joe Chill, who paid you to kill him? Kill him? What the hell are you talking about? He was a wanted man, a murderer for God's sake. I was trying to arrest him. He went for his guns. I didn't have a choice. He was hit with seven rounds from a nine-millimeter pistol. Yeah, that's right. Regulation all the way. No, it wasn't. The caliber was regulation, not the bullets. You used hollow points with mercury tips. Hey, a lot of cops use hot loads, pal. It's a war out there. I won't ask you again. I know about Barbara Jane Slocum. I know about you. If you don't tell me voluntarily, I have other things I could use. Truth serum? Don't waste your time, pal. My mind is too strong. I could lie to a polygraph and never bounce the needles. Believe me, I know. You are going to tell me. That's a promise. Now if you- Wait. All you want is the information? Yes. And if I talk, it's off the record. You swear? You have my word of honor. And if I was to... implicate myself somehow, it wouldn't go anywhere? It won't leave this room. I'll give you five minutes, no more. Then you can start talking, or we can see if your mind is as strong as you claim. I don't need no five minutes. I know your word is good. Hell, everyone knows. Go ahead, ask me your questions. Why did you murder Joe Chill? It was a job, pal. A job I got paid to do, that's all. Who paid you? The Slocum bits, just like you figured. Why? Why what? Why did Slocum want Shill murdered? He did a job for them, and the cops were closing in. They was afraid he'd turn yellow and give them up. Slowly now. What was the job Chill did? It was a hit. Went smooth as silk, too. All the cops thought it was a street mugging gone wrong, just like it was planned. Who was the target? Some nosy society bitch. 
Martha Wayne, I think her name was. She was getting in the way. The way of what? Look, pal, you got any idea how much money there is in kitty porn? Well, let me tell you, neither did I. There was a real sweet organization set up. It was so easy. I mean, look at the product. It's not like drugs. The more you step on cocaine, the weaker and weaker it gets, right? Well, with this kitty porn stuff, you can make copies endlessly. Understand? It was worth a fortune. And the beauty part is, nobody knew about it, see? I mean, I was a cop, right? And I never heard of it. I mean, I heard of it, but just rumors, like, nothing big time. Go on. At first, all they wanted was some tips. This Martha Wayne, she was feeding information direct to headquarters. Where she got it, I don't know. That dame had some good sources, that was for sure. Anyway, all I had to do was let Barbara Jane know when a raid was coming down. That worked good for a while, but finally they said this Wayne broad was going to be a problem forever. You understand what I mean? Oh, yes. So, the word went out. To hit her, I mean. This Joe Chill, he was supposed to be a real pro. And he pulled it off. I give him that. But after a while, he got scared. I don't know of what. He never said. He was spooking at shadows, like talking about ghosts and stuff like that. So, I did him in. He didn't suspect a thing. You killed Slocum too? Yeah, had to do it. The top guy, the one who was calling all the shots, he said it was her or me. The top guy? Her uncle. Or anyway, that's what she called him. Malady, his name is. But he split a long time ago. I heard he went to Europe or something. You knew what you were doing. Yeah, well, what do you mean? You knew these people were raping children and taking pictures of it to sell. Well, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't do anything like that myself. I mean, I'm not into kids or anything. As far as I'm concerned, they're a bunch of perverts. Lieutenant Alexander Horton, didn't that job, that rank, mean anything to you? Don't go all gooey on me. I was for sale. So big deal. Hell, lots of people are for sale. Just like her. He tilts his head backward to indicate the blonde. You trying to say I'm the only bent cop you ever heard of? No, but you're the first that would help people rape children. You want anything else? No, I have enough. You promised. Batman addresses the blonde. Here is the key for the restraints. You can unlock them any time I leave. The blonde sits rock still in the chair, not moving. Do you understand? The blonde doesn't move. Hey, you stupid bitch, pay attention. You forget you're a whore or something? Get off your fat butt and let me out of these things. The blonde's eyes come into focus. She looks into the Batman's masked face and nods. The Batman vanishes as suddenly as he appeared. <laughs> what a chump. Best deal I ever made. When the Batman says something is off the record, he can't go to the law with it. Everybody on the street knows his word is good as gold. All I need is a little time. Before he even starts tracking down all that stuff, I told him I'll be on the beach in Rio. Hey Rhonda, what are you doing? I told you to get over here and cut me loose. Where the hell did you go? Me? I'm right here. The blonde says quietly, stepping into view, holding the pistol she recovered from the floor in one hand. You're the one who's going. My notes? Okay, there was a lot of dialogue in that scene, so I had to kind of impromptu pull out the voices to keep everything straight. So Batman has his confirmation that 
Martha Wayne was indeed the target for the hit, and it was just meant to look like a mugging gone wrong. I'm kind of impressed that he kept his cool as well as he did, though he also kind of set up the lieutenant to get killed by the blonde woman. Um, I'm guessing that could have gone either way. Either she would let him go or she would shoot him. Batman seemed pretty sure that she would shoot him. So again, I'm curious what the clues were there for him that made him read that about her. Interesting. Chapter 12, Scene 4. Focus, the Batman commanded, stalking the floor of his cave. In combat, anger is the enemy, he chanted to himself. The words of his first sensei, internalized when Bruce Wayne was still a child. A child without a childhood. A boy who would become more than a man, and as if in payment, also become less. Suddenly the Batman whirled, his cape flowing behind him as smoothly as an afterimage. Snatching a telephone, he punched a single button and waited for the response, his uncowled face as expressionless as any mask could be. Yes, came a voice through the receiver. There was no need for a greeting on either end of the dedicated line. Only one person would ever call. Only one person would ever answer. Do you have anyone who has experience with pedophiles? The Batman asked. I have quite a few, unfortunately, Commissioner Gordon added. Specifically, what do you need? Someone who tracks them as they track children. Someone with experience in counterterrorism. I know just the man, the Commissioner responded. He's a bit unconventional, but there's nobody better. Name? Trask. Sherwood Trask. He works both probation and parole. Everything from pre-sentence investigations to trackdowns. Been doing it for a long time. In fact, he runs some of the training sessions at the academy. Would he know anything about Leonard Tuxley? The guy they found in the tunnel at Hellgate? Sure. In fact, I was just going over that file. Trask is your man, all right. Can you ask him to meet with me? Yes. Give me a call back, say, in half an hour. Done, the Batman said, breaking the connection. My notes... I really like that line uh, about Bruce Wayne having having been a child without a childhood. If that doesn't sum it up, what does? When I read the part about him being uncowled, it reminded me of a book I read this past week called Batman and Psychology. The book made an interesting point, you know, because we all know that there's that age-old dialogue of is Bruce Wayne the mask or is Batman the mask? Um, But there was an interesting point made that perhaps the closest thing we get to Batman slash Bruce Wayne's true self is when he's in the Batcave dressed as Batman, but with his cowl down or off. So I thought that was a pretty cool observation. Commissioner Gordon, yay! I haven't seen them use a phone on anything but the um, 66 Batman TV show, but I'm sure it's shown up in comics somewhere along the way. Fun fact for Chapter 12. The first modern trampoline was built by George Nissen and Larry Griswold in 1936. Nissen was a gymnastics and diving competitor, and Griswold was a tumbler on the gymnastics team, both at the University of Iowa. 
They had observed trapeze artists using a tight net to add entertainment value to their performance, and experimented by stretching a piece of canvas in which they had inserted grommets along each side to an angle iron frame by means of coiled springs. That was the end of chapter 11 and 12. Thank you for joining me, everyone. I'll see you next time with chapters 13 and 14. Until next time, Gothamites, happy reading. Batman is copyrighted to DC Comics and was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Bye.